even today when I'm having a tough month or a tough quarter, that's a lot of what informs my ability to go back to the basics and say, where have I tweaked my pitch? Where have I strayed away from those fundamentals and how I'm explaining the solution to the customer? So, you know, I think that was really significant and just the courage element to Andy and being young and naive enough to not really understand how important the CFO of a Fortune 500 company is to the global economy and just picking up the phone all day long and more or less demanding that they give me a few minutes of their time to make my case. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Leslie Vanetz, and Leslie's the new business development director for procurement leaders. Now, from time to time, I have the pleasure to meet people who have such a genuine passion for sales and a passion for helping others become the best they can be. And they're giving and giving back to the sales community, and Leslie happens to be just one such person. In this episode, we talk about Leslie's professional journey in sales, and the unique barriers she's faced as a woman in this profession. We also dive into her sales work, which is a very unique challenge for a seller because she sells events and services for procurement professionals, right? She's selling to procurement professionals. They're not you know, just coming in and getting involved in a deal like you're selling to the sales or marketing department or what have you. Now, this is selling to procurement people. And Leslie shares some of her insights from her work about what sellers should be doing differently, what they should be doing better in order to sell to procurement folks. We'll also talk about Leslie's side gig and the content she's creating and sharing really to help all sellers. That's some really good stuff. So all this and much, much more. But before we get to Leslie, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for hand- having me, Andy. Oh, it's a pleasure. So where have you been sheltering in place? Mostly in Chicago. I'm um, in my, uh, my high-rise condo in Chicago, sort of looking out uh, at the world I, I used to inhabit, but mm. uh, <laughs> did get to spend six weeks in Montana. I'm a native Montanan, so that was a, a oh, really did. lovely reprieve. Yeah. Oh, that was nice. That was nice. Yeah. So we're in Montana. So I grew up in Great Falls and uh, have a huge Italian family. Most of them are are still there. So went back and spent six weeks in my childhood home in my childhood bedroom, <laughs> uh, which is gosh something I, I never thought uh, I would do. But it, it was it was honestly a treat. So did you feel younger being back in your childhood bedroom? Did I feel younger? I don't know. I felt very spoiled because my mother is an absolute saint. Uh, And so every morning I'd wake up and, you know, a cup of a pot of coffee had already be made. And my dad loves making breakfast. So I'd always have a fresh, like full breakfast to eat. Mm -hmm. So I felt felt very spoiled while I was there. And uh, my parents had also just uh, picked up a yellow lab puppy. So I was quarantining with a perfect little adorable puppy. So it was it was a pretty good combination for me. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds absolutely great. Yeah, we've been fortunate, my wife and I, the last week we've been 
looking after my my daughter's uh, dog, sort of a German Shepherd mix. It was just absolute sweetheart, and it's like. Yeah, this is a good time to have a dog, right? Yeah, it brings a little extra dose of joy to the day. Yeah, well, so you get it. Yeah, you know, if, if you felt you were being confined to quarters, it's a good way to get out and walk the dog and mm-hmm. sort of see what's going on. As long as you're wearing your mask, yeah, so, yep, keeping keeping your distance. So, what took you to Chicago then? You know, I am. Uh, I would say a very deliberate decision maker. So I, having grown up in Montana, and then I I stayed there um, and got an amazing state school education for like Mm -hmm. 15 grand a year. Um, I I knew, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty great deal. I I knew though that I I wanted to leave. I I wanted an opportunity to live in the big city, to um, get closer to different cultures, different ways of, of thinking. So I made a big matrix on an Excel document and, and on one wow. side were you are organized. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, just a little bit crazy. Um, but, uh, on, on one side were all of the kind of big cities that I thought I might want to live in. And at the top, I, um, charted everything that at the time, you know, at, at whatever 20 something years old was important to me and then assigned point values and Chicago <laughs> just had the most points, so I sold well, all my belongings and moved without a job. <laughs> so, so, well, all right, we're going to dig into that. But, 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 what were the what were the criteria using to evaluate where you wanted to go? Oh my gosh! Well, some of them are are what you would think, right? Job market, mm-hmm. safety, stuff like that. You know, sort of cost of living. Some of them were a bit more nuanced. A really important one was the ability to get home. How how easily could I get back to sure. Montana and, and sure. how much would it cost me? Um, luckily, the the cost of those trips has gone down quite a bit over the last decade. Um, and then stuff like access to live music. I'm a huge fan of love, live music and concerts and theater. So, it, you know, it was a combination of what I think anybody would be looking for and, and then a couple elements that were especially important to me. And what type of music? Gosh, I am pretty eclectic. I like everything from, you know, I I guess sort of the pop that everybody likes to underground hip hop. My favorite band is a band called Widespread Panic, which is more of like a a sort of jam band. Hmm. I'm all over the place. The only things I can't get behind, I I really struggle with country music. Sorry, (laughs) contemporary country music, not like the the Johnny Cash. Right. Um, And I can't get behind jazz music. I just, I can't do it anymore. Oh, okay. I mean, you're talking about like real modern jazz or... Um, I don't like the way it makes my brain feel. It doesn't follow... The, the I don't know the story. Right, I've got I've got some recommendations for you. We'll, okay, we'll talk after. I, I'm I'm always open to trying things. <laughs> yeah, I, I never thought I was a big jazz fan, and but actually I I write to jazz. That's that for, I find that's for me is that's that's the thing when I'm writing, and I've sort of trained myself. I'm sort of like Pavlov's dog at this point. A certain jazz piece I put on, and I just start writing. I love that. Well, it, yeah. it probably helps you with, I would think, creativity because it's it's not predictable. It's it's probably forcing your brain to create new pathways. <sighs> yeah. Well, gosh, that'd be great at my age. I'm, <laughs> afraid I'm losing the pathways faster than I'm gaining them. So, um, so how'd you get your start in sales? 
I absolutely fell into it. Not intentional at, at all. Like everybody. I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a pretty common story. I So I moved to Chicago without a job, uh, but had set up quite a few interviews at the time. It was right before the, the uh, recession. Mm-hmm. So markets were booming. And I primarily was looking at like marketing because I got a marketing degree or I was looking at nonprofits because I'd, mm. I'd done a lot of nonprofit work in, in college and it was something mm-hmm. I was really, or am still really passionate about. And um, then quite a few event companies because I'd, I'd done a lot of work in that space. So, uh, you know, didn't, didn't have a lot of focus in terms of this is what my career path is and ultimately ended up taking a sales position with an events company with the thought process of I'll show them I'm great at sales and then demand that they transfer me to a different, uh, you know, different business unit, different department. And you mean like becoming a planner? Yeah. 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 Because they didn't have, you know, that's such a popular position for folks. Um, They didn't have any open positions at, at the time. So I took the open sales position and it was, I mean, it was almost immediate within weeks. I realized that I just, loved sales. It was something that came very naturally to me, uh, something that it it was easy for me to get excited about every single day. Hmm. And uh, I decided pretty quickly that sales was it for me. It was something I wanted to to make a profession. So what were you actually selling? So I was selling, um, they're called summits, which is, is, I don't know, sort of a fancy word for a a small conference, but I Mm -hmm. was at the time selling to CFOs of fortune 500 organizations, um, opportunities to attend these small, like 50 person, you know, intimate closed door, uh, networking events. So it, it was kind of, you know, into the deep end, selling immediately to Fortune 500 CFOs, like a couple of weeks after I graduated from college. (laughs) And I mean, you were obviously doing this on phone, I imagine. Yep. All telesales. And it was old school telesales. No, uh, no computers at the desks. Even you were working off stacks of paper. And then when you needed to send emails, you would get up and go use a shared computer to send off your emails. <laughs> Wait, this was like 2008. You're talking about 2007, yeah, yeah. 2007 2008. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> so this, this company, Marcus Evans, I take it was not very well invested in sales infrastructure or marketing infrastructure. No, they weren't. And, and I know, uh, because I'm still heavily connected to the company, they've made a lot of strides and certainly not just for Marcus Evans, but for many companies, the <laughs> pandemic has catapulted people forward on, on their you know path to, to digitalization. So um, you know, I think it's still a bit old school, but hey, if it works for them, it works. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they were they were only conservatively in 2007, maybe 20 years behind, <laughs> behind <laughs> time. Uh, so obviously, no CRM system. Uh, no, no, no. So how did you? How did you? <laughs> first of all, you know, how did you build your list? I mean. Yeah, I would say one thing that uh, was extraordinarily well timed into uh, along with my entry to the job market was LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So that was the advent of of LinkedIn. Right. Um, you know, created my profile in two thousand seven when I think 
I mean, there were less than a million people on the platform for sure, but I think significantly less than a million people, but, hmm. you know, had a chance to start building my profile and start connecting with, with folks immediately. So LinkedIn was a, a great avenue to get closer to my customer and build relationships where, it, you know, there was a bit more of an opportunity to ask for referrals, ask for feedback and advice. But a lot of it was, I mean, going to association lists, pulling names off of those, going to the the company website and digging through press releases to see what you could mm-hmm. find. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, it was a lot of very creative Google searches with, um, you know, quotations and quotations plus dot XLS to try to uncover <laughs> a, a few names that were going to uh, to meet the criteria. Google searches on a shared computer. Correct. Yes, correct. I would do. I would do all my research at home. I was going to uh, say. Yeah, yeah, I would. I would wait, and I would get home, and and you know, certainly straight out of the gates, I would do two or three hours of research a night every single night, so that I was walking back into office the next day with fresh leads to, you know, to be able to call. And that way I could spend my days actually on the phone um, because it's, you know, maybe not surprising, but CFOs don't tend to pick up their, uh, their office lines that often. It takes a, it takes a lot of calls to get to them. Right. So tell us what you were doing. I mean, how are you recruiting their assistants and so on to help you get in front of them? Yeah. Interesting um, process in that we, we're not recruiting assistants at all. And, you know, it's funny because I think that mentality stuck with me for many, many, many years that gatekeepers are enemies. And, you know, you don't want to give them any information. You don't want to hmm. leave any messages with them. Well, where, where was that coming from? Was that the sort of the culture in the company? Or, I mean, how did you. Definitely the culture in the company, but anecdotally, a lot of it sussed out. Like you would see your colleagues sort of cave and not follow the process, leave a message with an admin, and it was done. The lead was burned there. We're never going to let you through to the, the CFO because now they knew why you were calling. Mm. And particularly because you were selling an event, and, and so it had a specific date. It was such an easy opportunity for the admin to get the date and say, no, that person's not available when, you know, we know that when we reach the CFO and actually talk about who else is going to be there and and what topics are being discussed, that more often than not, the CFO would make the time. They'd rearrange their schedule Mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. in that room. So, you know, definitely company culture, but anecdotally, it didn't go well when we did try to to leverage gatekeepers. So it was a, an, an insane amount of cold calling, just absolutely insane amount. We also didn't leave voicemails. So it was just cold calling until somebody picked up the phone. Oh, wow. Sounds like such fun. So you what know, did you enjoy about it? I learned a lot. <laughs> um, I learned a lot. Gosh, I, I, I mean, just in terms of the importance of an impact statement, the importance of speaking the language of your customer mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, making sure you're not going into those conversations with fluffy language or, or you know, the kind of that internal lingo that only means stuff to your staff. So right. it helped me really refine my pitch, refine my impact statement, really understand what was going to be most compelling most quickly for my audience. And I think, you know, even today when I'm having a tough month or a tough quarter, that's a lot of what informs my ability to go back to the basics and say, where have I tweaked 
my pitch? Where, where have I strayed away from those fundamentals and how I'm explaining this solution to Mm -hmm. the customer? So, uh, you know, I think that was really significant and just the courage element to Andy and in um, being young and naive enough to not really understand how important the CFO of a fortune 500 company is <laughs> to the global economy and just, you know, picking up the phone all day long and, and, you know, more or less demanding that they give me a few minutes of their, their time to make my case. So it, it was, it was really good experience. What did I like about it beyond that? Um, we would sell a ton of different summits. So I wasn't always working with CFOs. I'd switch and I'd be selling to CHROs or, or CTOs. Or mm-hmm. Later, I got really heavily invested into building out our energy portfolio. So, um, you know, transmission companies, power companies. And that opportunity to constantly be learning about a new vertical and that opportunity to to always be flexing the, the sort of curiosity mu- muscle was mm. really compelling to me. My type of person. So you got your first management experience at Mark Sevens. I did. And were you the proverbial top rep that got promoted or did you want to go into management? Both. Um, I was a top performer. Um and, you know, I sort of deeply disagree with the premise that top performers should automatically become managers, that that's the natural next step. I, I don't think that that is the correct thinking. In this situation, um, I not only was a top performer, but I was also really passionate about opportunities to coach and train and invest in my peers. Mm-hmm. It's I I love that, especially when you have an opportunity um, to to partner with and invest in those more ground level or entry level folks because they're often so hungry to learn and to grow that you see such an ROI on on the information you're giving them and and they rush to the phones to put it in place. So it, it was a little a little bit uh, a little bit of both. I was doing the job, doing the job well, and I I felt like I had. Um, you know, a lot to offer my peers and helping lift them up and, uh, you know, helping them better understand the process and and Mm -hmm. execute it to close some deals. I mean, were you, so I'm very interested in this peer coaching thing, because I was in a conversation yesterday with a well-known sales industry analyst who was putting forth the case that, in his perspective, the future forward in sales in terms of bringing more coaching to sellers was really peer coaching mm-hmm. and trying to more f- formalize that within companies and provide incentives for people to do peer coaching and so on. Um, I mean, were you structured about it or was it just sort of ad hoc or how'd you approach it? Very structured. I, I, I will say that the role at Marcus Evans came with an incredible amount of training. And part of that was coaching. And and while they were maybe a bit behind the dime on some technologies where they did uh, have great technologies was the ability to shadow calls, do live call coaching, record calls, and and have a chance to sit down and, and, uh, you know, go through them with with staff later. So, uh, you know, a positive was that there was a, a 
a, a very active culture around the importance mm-hmm. of coaching and and um, cer- certainly a mindset that everybody needs to be very, very open to being coached live on the open sales floor, right. which, you know, I think that's another skill set to to build straight out of college is, is being critiqued by your supervisor in front of all of your peers. Being and Yeah. And, and, you know, realizing that they're doing it to make you better. And if you listen, you're going to then <laughs> reap those benefits. But you were... And just back to I make this point about peer coaching, but you were doing that before you got promoted. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and so, was being promoted one of those things where I mean, in my case, in my first promotion, my first job, yeah, I just remember the manager saying because I was doing the same, and him just basically saying, "Well, you're fundamentally already doing the job, <laughs> so uh, why don't we just formalize it and make you a sales manager?" Gosh, I don't remember if that conversation happened. It's I I don't know. I I think based on what I remember, if I'm being honest, it was probably more like, okay, you just hit your numbers every month for the the last six months. You're eligible for a promotion. Do you want it? I think it was probably a, a bit less romantic than <laughs> Leslie. You're doing such an incredible job, pure coaching. Let's let's well, highlight. They didn't, didn't say it that way. Let's, let's be clear. <laughs> but I, you know, I think it's a really interesting point that that well, you my- make. Yeah, my boss had always said that. Excuse me, so that you know, I'd asked him once. I'd said, "Well, how do you know when somebody's ready to be promoted?" And he said, "When they're already doing the job." Yeah, yeah. There's a platform that I contribute to called uh, Almanac. Yeah, yeah. I checked that out. Yeah, yeah. I love Almanac, uh, and it's interesting because I just contributed a document on moving from IC to manager, and one of the the four critical pieces of, of advice I gave was start doing the job, start becoming that mentor, start uh, acting like a leader, start mm-hmm. speaking like a leader, and you are you know positioning yourself to be promoted much more quickly. So it, well, you know, yeah. I, you're giving a cue to management. On. You're mm-hmm. giving a cue to management that, yeah, I'm somebody that's, I'm just not a <laughs> top performer that you should automatically promote, but I've, I've got an interest in this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think an extension to that is, at least for me, something I've found very important in my career as a manager is to continue to lead from the front. Mm-hmm. So I've always maintained at least a small portion of my own territory or, or some key accounts mm-hmm. so that what I'm asking my staff to do, I'm also doing to, to the extent that it, in my current company, um, which is a, a research and advisory company, I turned down a promotion because it was going to be purely management with no opportunity. And I'd be hiring all new people that had never seen me sell before, mm-hmm. um, with no opportunity to, to do the job and, and really show them um, that I am worth listening to. So, uh, you know, I love that concept of not just peer to peer coaching, but um, coaching from a viewpoint of somebody who's also doing the job. Well, it's interesting. I mean, so you, what you're bringing up is this idea is that, and I'm a believer in this, by the way, is that, that sellers need to see their managers talk the talk and walk the walk. Mm-hmm. And this role modeling is is hugely important. And I agree with that 100%. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, I always try to think of a time in all the years I was 
managing teams and growing sales teams at companies and so on where I didn't have something I was working on myself as well. Yep. I think it's really important. I think it's a lesson that gets missed oftentimes by managers, especially these days where managers are weighted down oftentimes by reporting requirements and keeping track of KPIs and yada, yada, yada. And they you know, claim they don't even have time for coaching, let alone working a deal themselves. Right. Yeah. So when you were at Marcus Evans and I mean, was this a predominantly male oriented sales organization? I mean, what was, what was, you know, was there somebody there that similar role, other women or a woman manager that, you know, sort of could help you develop? No, no, there sure wasn't. It, it was, uh, <laughs> it was definitely, oh gosh, I think when I started, it was all men. And when I left, it was me and, and one other woman sort of in the, the management, but, uh, over the, you know, over the course of how long were there? Nine years. Well, given the rate at which they're adopting technology, that's probably a rapid pace for them. <laughs> rapid pace, rapid pace. Um, and, and certainly the entire senior leadership team, both the global senior leadership team as, as well as the, the leadership team sat in the Chicago office, um, all men as well. Um, so, you know, I was really lucky that for a, a good chunk of that time, probably about four or five years, the... Um, I think his title was COO. The COO of that business unit was a great mentor to me. And, and that doesn't mean I always agreed with his advice because I, I you know, thought some of it just was not as applicable to me as a woman trying to mm-hmm. make my way in the business. But he was a, a really strong advocate for me. Um, and and uh, I certainly valued that mentorship. But uh, I've always really struggled to find a female mentor. Like I, I've never had somebody that I would really point to and say, you were another female in sales that I was a long-term mentor that I would say really, you know, supported my growth. You were fundamental to mm-hmm. my growth. And I think I'm not the only woman in sales that has struggled to, to find female mentorship. Well, and to that point, I mean, <laughs> is that mentorship within the company or just sort of in the profession in general? Because... I was just wondering if if there have been particular women sort of in the global sort of sales uh, ecosystem that have been particular role models for you. You know, I think role models in that I read their content and Mm -hmm. I I like what they're saying. Um, But, you know, I, I think more than mentorship, Andy, I've had some incredible thought partners folks that are are maybe at a similar point in their career path to me, but are excited about the profession, are excited about, you know, the hashtag right now, what the women supporting women hashtag, but that take mm-hmm. it really seriously. And um, I, I think those individuals being a voice that lifts me up, helps, you know, lean in on those days where I'm maybe experiencing a bit of imposter syndrome um, that challenges me to have tough conversations about diversity, about equity, about pay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I think less than a, a mentorship, I have really focused on finding those thought partners who uh, you know, I, I know are going to empower me and, and, you know, like for like, I'm going to have a chance to empower and lift them up. Right. Well, I mean, you, 
what I liked about when I was doing research for this interview is that that you are have been involved proactively in sort of giving back. I mean, you talk about Almanac, you're posting on Almanac, uh, you're active on Quora up to a point. Um, (laughs) So, and providing, you know, tons of answers to questions. So, are you finding people sort of women that are earlier in their careers are responding to that? Because I presume they have the same issue. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think my mentality in general is that for me, it's just a lot of institutional knowledge. It costs me a little bit of time, but no money to, to share that. And a lot of what I share are the things that I was desperate to understand and, and didn't know where to find them when, when I was new. Mm-hmm. Um, I do get some really personal and, and lovely notes from women who are starting in, in sales and marketing, asking for bits of advice or, or, you know, sometimes just saying, wow, I, I, you know, I just read this answer that you responded to on Quora. Um, and it's, you know, it was, it really means a lot to me than just to know that I'm not alone in right. how I'm thinking or how I'm feeling. So it's, I love giving back, um, not just in, in a professional capacity, but, um, you know, through broader volunteerism. And, you know, I, I think that mentality of empathy and that mentality of creating a community or, or recently a friend that's a realtor put it really well, that mentality of uh, open palm instead of closed fist. <laughs> so appropriate these days. Yeah. And it's, it's the way I want to live my life. And in sales, it's turned out to be a really good mentality because you have folks that then come back to you with referrals or, mm-hmm. or they couldn't buy from you in one role, but they remember that you treated them with kindness. Right. Uh, and then when they switch to a new role, they say, Hey, you know, let's, let's talk, let's see where we can make something work. So it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because it was certainly not an intentional sales style or, or maybe, sort of way of living my life, but it's, it's one that has really had some lovely benefits. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, I want to talk, touch for a second. Cause I, I find where you, what you're currently doing, uh, the company called procurement leaders is interesting because mm-hmm. you know, on one hand it, it sort of sounds like a salesperson's worst nightmare is that you're actually <laughs> selling to procurement as opposed to procurement being involved in the, in the process. So, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do there. Yeah, you are, are not wrong. It is an interesting uh, adventure into sales. So um, it's a solution sale. We are working with procurement teams to help them act more strategically to be a more strategic partner to the business. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a, you know, a combination of the sort of advisory piece or, or uh, plugging them into other folks in the community that are doing it along with the research piece, giving them access to uh, a, you know, a portal full of great strategy research insights, tools, etc. So I think two things make it really complicated and also then very interesting one, the solution is massive. Um, it's it's designed to be everything for all people, which makes it difficult on an intracore on a discovery call to to really summarize in a, a meaningful way. So, mm-hmm. you know, a, a positive of that is coming into this sale. I ditched the pitch deck. I don't pitch off a deck. Um, I ditched the sort of step one, step two, step three. And my first call now is entirely focused on 
getting to know the prospect and, and understanding their needs, their constraints, their dreams. And I found that that then allows me to move on to a second call with um, a bit more of an intentional focus in terms of what part of the massive solution is meaningful to them. Um, and I'm so thankful to work for a company like procurement leaders who, when I was a couple weeks in seat and told them I'm not going to pitch off a pitch deck, they were like, okay, yep, we trust you. So, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so that, that's really lovely. Uh, but certainly the other part is pitching to procurement, pitching to people that often have, uh, you know, master's degrees in rhetoric and negotiation. So it's, um, you know, I, I think procurement too often is sort of seen like the redhead stepchild in their organization and where other folks see them as, as maybe a hurdle to overcome. Oh, a, a, a black hole to be avoided. Black I mean, hole, there, yes. there was, there was, there was <laughs> yeah, at least one author last year published a book, you know, sort of saying avoid procurement in all cases. And I have to admit my career, I, always made procurement allies as much as I could. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I'm rereading the challenger customer right now, which is uh, you know, yeah, written by um, CEB or, or when I guess challenger was owned by CEB yeah. mm-hmm. um, and they had a huge procurement arm. So they talk a lot about that, it, it, you know, procurement is the black hole. How do you make procurement and, and ally? Um, but what I found when pitching directly to procurement is that they, are they are not as willing to spend money on themselves as they might be to spend money on other parts of the business. So a, a lot of the work I do is, you know, I, I almost think like inspiring some confidence in them. Like you really deserve to have this voice in your company and you really deserve to have a partner that can help you get there. Um, and then we get to, a little bit, a little, a yeah. little bit. And then we get to the negotiation process and, and, you know, maybe then six weeks later, um, after I've like cried in the corner, we finally have a contract in, but <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's been a really interesting role. It's, it's really forced me to find, um, some new and, and creative ways to, sell to connect with the customer to to go through the contracting process so i've really appreciated the uh you know the opportunity and experience so what are you hearing from the people you're selling to about their experiences with sellers you know it's it's interesting because a lot of the conversations we have are the the dynamic of internal stakeholder relationships mm-hmm. versus external supplier relationships and what we see again and again is that procurement loves their suppliers and they feel very very aligned to their suppliers their established suppliers um, but there's a huge 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 disconnect with their internal stakeholders so you know it's it's interesting from a salesperson's hmm. perspective because let's say you're trying to sell something to marketing and then right. procurement procurement enters the scene and, and you know, you all of a sudden put your opportunity from stage five back down to, to stage one. Um, but it, it's, it's often because procurement thinks that they know what their stakeholders want and they think they know what the business wants them to deliver. But when you actually talk to the stakeholders, it's, it's 
quite a bit different. So it's uh, it's a whole piece of, of research. It's a whole pillar of our research that we work on with members to help them understand that the need to be closer to their business partners and, and the need to speak the language of the business, like we as salespeople speak the language of mm-hmm. our customers mm-hmm. um, to, to bridge the, the gap there between what they think um, stakeholders need and, and what they actually need. Well, it's interesting because it it sounds as if that, based on what you're saying, is is that oftentimes the when sell when accelerators experience a sort of this this disruption in flow uh, and through their process, really starts from yeah their stakeholder their primary stakeholder that wants to buy what they're selling, not being sufficiently clear. With procurement, in fact, in many cases, probably having the same dread of dealing with procurement as the salespeople do. I think that's spot on. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting thing from a perspective as a seller. Is think about that is because you know there is this irrational fear of procurement, and everybody's had, and we all had negative experiences. But you know, when I go back and look at the negative experiences in the light of what things like what you've said and and others, it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> I could have fixed that, or I could have addressed that. Uh, mm-hmm. In most cases, in some cases, there's a few cases where it just wasn't possible. But these days, as you said, is procurement acting much more a strategic um, business partner of the internal clients? Yeah, they. My impression, my impression, my experience has been is that yeah, it's a different ballgame out there. It is. I mean, the the data shows it too when you look at the uptick in how many influencers are now part of a, a decision. And influencers, maybe if, if you're selling to marketing, they're not even five to eight or whatever the statistic mm-hmm. is today. It's not even necessarily eight influencers within marketing. It might be five in marketing and, and one in IT and one in legal and you know one in risk and, and one in procurement. And you know I, I think of reality for salespeople, if, if they want to not just survive, but thrive, is understanding that you are probably working with cross-functional influencers and not just selling sort of at them or to them, but giving them the tools that they need to be able to sell your idea, their idea internally, because that's what's happening. You hang up the phone or you get off the Zoom and they now have to go sell. Right. Um, and it, you know, it used to be we got to sell to everybody directly and now we are, are having to equip other folks to sort of do the, the job for us, do the second layer of the job for us when we right. get off the phone. Yeah, no, very interesting. So I wanted to ask you, you've got a little bit of a side hustle going. A little bit. <laughs> so... The sales team builder. So this is part, I think, of your giving back. So what is what is sales team builder? Yeah. So you know, I think ultimately, Andy, long term goal. I'd I'd like to do sales consulting as a full time profession, um, which speaks to that desire to to coach, to train, to invest. Mm. And right now, what I've been doing this year is is um, really just giving a lot of time away because I've seen so many people lose their jobs or have their pipelines completely collapse. And heck, things are not all rosy on my end as, as well. So we're, we're figuring it out together, but, right. um, you know, trying to, to lean in where I can to help the, the sort of broader sales community, um, 
what I do when maybe markets are, are better is a lot of folks, uh, I, I would say it's primarily B2B inside sales is, is mm-hmm. Uh, where most of my clients come from. So working on things like pitch decks, impact statements, um, overcoming ob- objections, um, you know, what sort of collateral should you be sending to the clients? What should your, you know, email mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. content or email cadences look like? So it's a lot of fun. And uh, it certainly, I think, gives me insight into a lot of different types of sales Right. which I really value. And um, yeah, it's it's very much a side hustle right now, picking up gigs here and there, mostly from Upwork. But uh, down the road, it's certainly something I'd love to make a full-time gig. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap up. I've got some uh, something new, actually. I, haven't, I actually started my podcast. I made the first 400 episodes. I used to do this. Some standard questions. Um learn a little bit more about the the guest. So I'm um, bringing that back. And so the first thing is I'm going to give you some word pairs and I just need you to choose of the word pairs. You just choose the one that pops in your mind first and say it out loud. And we'll go through that real quickly. Okay. Oh, it's like a, a quick fire round to wrap yes, up here. It is. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm ready, Andy. All right. So it'll be seven of these word pairs. So first one, buying or selling? Selling. Marketing or sales? Sales. Skills or mindset? Mindset. Training or coaching? Coaching. Outbound or inbound? Outbound. Persuasion or influence? Influence. Face-to-face or Zoom-to-Zoom? Face-to-face. All right. Okay. So, last book you read on sales, what was it? So, I'm reading Challenger right now. Challenger Um, customer, right? Yep, yep. And right before that, I read The Sale Beyond the Sales Process. Um, Really interesting book. And who's that by? Two authors. Gosh, you'd think that I would know since I looked at the cover <laughs> of it like every day for many days. Um, really interesting book, not just for salespeople, but for account managers, particularly mm-hmm. if you're in a role where you are renewing or upselling and uh, an account. Um, so I really enjoyed that one as well. Okay. So favorite non-sales podcast. Oh my gosh, Andy, this was the hardest question of the entire interview. I am obsessed with podcasts. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would be almost impossible for me to pick one, but I can tell you, and you know, we all have like our, our, our sort of podcasts that are the, the old classics, the, right. the radio lab sorts of, uh, of podcasts, but there's two that I love right now. One is called flash forward. It's a futurist podcast, okay. which is just, it really makes my brain just it's it's very compelling, um, and the second one is every little thing. And yes. the, have you listened to that? One? Oh yeah. my god! It it warms my heart. There's an episode on pink flamingos and how they are the uh, most astounding animal of all animals in the animal kingdom. It's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I think um, to be totally honest, my attention span has not been as um, lengthy 
uh, during times of pandemic as it might usually be. So I, I think I, a lot of people share that. I'm really loving the short kind of punchy podcasts where they're, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes. Um, and then when I'm ready to, to dig in, I'm going to, you know, do a podcast like the sales enablement or a, a stuff you should know that are, are longer, but it's nice to have those shorter ones to, um, to listen to as well. Well, good. So, uh, Leslie, it's been a real pleasure. Same. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to talk and look forward to doing it again. Wonderful. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Leslie Vanetz, for sharing her story with us today. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating and a review, let us know how we're doing, but we'd certainly appreciate that. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>